Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's May 30th, 1381, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. John Bampton tax collector. Not one of those characters from history who's really stuck around. But what he triggered today in history in 1381, you probably will have heard of. The so-called Peasants' Revolt, in which English labourers, the ones he was trying to tax, descended on the capital, stormed royal castles and decapitated people in the most significant protest of the 14th century. And while there are a lot of factors at play in the revolt, which I'm sure we'll come to later, essentially it all blew up in this moment over the poll tax, which was as unpopular in the 1380s as it was in the 1980s. It was, basically, it's a fixed sum levied on every person, regardless of their income. So you can see why it would be pretty unpopular if you, your income isn't particularly high. And so what John Bampton was doing on this day was attempting to finally collect some of the massive shortfalls. So he'd arrived in Brentwood in Essex and he had summoned representatives of all the local villages to explain the shortfall. And when they turned up armed with bows and clubs, the atmosphere changed very dramatically. And when he attempted to arrest their ringleader, he was forced to flee and several of his clerks were killed. Yeah, they then fled and got together with the Chief Justice, Sir Robert Belknap, and he came back ostensibly to calm the situation, but he just suffered the exact same fate. He was driven out. If your tax collector's been chased out of Essex with bows and arrows, don't go back with another tax collector. That's not who they want (laughs) to see. (laughs) Exactly. And then all over Essex, groups began banding together to turn on their landowners. I mean, there were actually some other obvious triggers as well. This was immediately after the Black Death had really just eradicated up to, you know, a third to a half of England's population. And that left the peasants, who were the bottom of the feudal system, in a position to be able, for the first time ever, to negotiate in this sort of strong way, where there wasn't enough labour and they began to ask for more money. Yeah, they were at a rare advantage there, if it can be called an advantage when half your family and everyone you know dies from a horrible illness. But (laughs) what it meant was the labouring classes (laughs) actually had the ability to say, right, well, there are fewer people to do work for you. Half the landowners are dead as well. So you're going to have to pay more for my labour. And indeed, the cost of labour did temporarily go up in the years before this. But then the ruling classes intervened to depress wages to their pre-Black Death rate and at the same time have this poll tax which sort of ostensibly seems fair. Everyone pays the same, but obviously 12 pence Mm. is not very much for the landowners and it's a lot for the people that are in indentured servitude. Yeah, in the 1350s and 1360s, lots of new statutes were introduced, basically trying to reverse this narrowing profit margin that the aristocracy were complaining about. The statutes obliged all men under 60 to work, so basically made it illegal to refuse a job offer. It set fixed wages at pre-plague levels, and it criminalised basically poaching employees. You know, Lords couldn't tempt the peasants away with the offer of higher wages. 
And at first, these laws were enforced with fines, but then in the 1360s, harsher deterrents were brought in, like imprisonment or branding. And there were also like, lots of other very intrusive laws targeting the increased peasant purchasing power. Uh, there was one that dictated the types of cloth agricultural labours could wear, and, and it restricted them to blanket and russet, basically scratchy wool with no adornment whatsoever. So it was a really oppressive attempt to turn back the progress that peasants had made. And simultaneously, then you had this massive change in the church, which had been really badly hit by the plague as well. And many of the clergy after this were quite sort of poorly educated. And there was this diminishing popular respect for the church, who also were major landowners. And, you know, the abbots and the bishops then sided with the barons and landowners against the peasants. And this made the church kind of this hated organisation. And the, the peasants felt very betrayed like personally betrayed by an organisation that should have been helping them rather than exploiting them. And it was made worse by this uh, collection of rebellious priests led by John Ball, who really preached against the church and the barons. His most famous verse was, while Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman, i.e. there had been no group of like non-working layabouts in the time of Adam and Eve, so why do we have this like class of oppressors above us now? Yeah. Yeah, it was quite impressive, actually, when you read what John Ball said, or at least how it's been written down in the Chronicles, is that a lot of it is relatable. I mean, I know you just had to explain the biblical <laughs> allusion. But, I mean, here's something that he's quoted as saying by the chronicler Froissart, talking about the haves and have-nots, basically. Quote, They are clothed in velvet and camlet, furred with grease, and we be vestured with poor cloth. They have their wine, spices, and good bread, and we have the drawing out of the chaff and drink water. They dwell in fair houses, and we have the pain and travail, rain and wind in the fields. And by that that cometh of our labours, they keep and maintain their estates, and we have no sovereign to whom we may complain, nor that will hear us, nor do us right. Where's my pitchfork? (laughs) (laughs) Smash the state! That's pretty plain English, isn't it, for 1381? Like, I get the grievance. Well, but despite yeah. the dichotomy that Ball's sermons had set up, the research indicates that the majority, you know, the Peasants' Revolt, as the name suggests, popularly depicted as being, you know, these feudal serfs who had nothing. But historians believe that the majority of them were free labourers, tradesmen, artisans, people who were relatively well-to-do, and that many of them lived in towns. You know, they weren't all oppressed farmers. And that was just because there was so much popular upset with the ruling classes generally over the poll tax, over the economy more generally, and also the fact that at this point we're more than 40 years into the Hundred Years' War, and it was mm. extremely costly. You know, generations had come and gone seeing this war play out. And there was another issue as well regarding the particular grievance with the royal commissioners who came around to assess the evasion of the poll tax, which was the heavy-handed techniques they were using. Now, this didn't emerge until after, maybe centuries after the Peasants' Revolts. So it's not like at the time people were saying this is what was happening, but I think that's because they would have lacked the words to say that this is what they were reporting But rumours, as you read them now, are that they were going around basically upskirting women to see if they were Mm. virgins or not, uh, by which to conclude whether they were over 15, you know, whereas you you might think you could perhaps ask her father, you know, (laughs) the other techniques. You can imagine why people felt not just um, oppressed, but actively abused by these tax collectors. Yeah, and I think that's why when the uprising began in one place, it was able to spread so quickly across the country because those grievances were common 
up and down the whole of England. And so, you know, very quickly you had people doing these things that were immediately pragmatic, like banding together to try to burn the records of taxes and labour duties and debts so that they would be destroyed and, they, you know, the tax collectors didn't know who owned money. But then it sort of gets a little bit more out of control with manor houses being destroyed and some of the more... Or decapitating. Yeah, got a bit decapitating, unpopular landowners kind of rounded up and killed. And then the peasants began to march on London. And Wat Tyler, who you may have heard of already, was named their leader at a rally in Maidstone on the 7th of June. We don't know very much about his life before this, except that he had been an archer during the war with France. But anyway, this swelling, angry mass of armed men started drifting menacingly on London. They got lots of new allies. They then started storming prisons, setting the prisoners free, attacking the Royal Council buildings, killing officials. They arrived at Blackheath on the 12th of June, where they heard John Ball's famous um, When Adam Delved and Eve Span sermon. At this point, the Bishop of Rochester and the king himself tried to intervene and negotiate peace. It was kind of difficult for Richard. He was only 14. But because most of his troops were either fighting in France or stationed near the Scottish border, he had to play this sort of risky game of, you know, making nice with the rebels and appearing to be open to their demands without actually doing anything, biding his time until he could get reinforcements. There was a moment actually where Richard agreed to meet Wat Tyler in Rotherhithe and he sailed down the river in his royal barge. But when he got there, there were about 50,000 peasants on the shore waiting for him. And his advisors were just like, no, yeah, let's turn around and not do this negotiation (laughs) just yet. Um, And so the negotiations did wait. But that night, the peasants closed in on London and they were able to enter the city because the gates to the city and London Bridge were opened by towns people who were either sympathetic to their cause or, as they later claimed, they'd been forced to do it. Or were just being pragmatic. Well, true. Like, if they let them burn everything, it's going to be harder to recover. You know, if you're the guy on the door... Is it worth your life at this point? You're seeing tens of thousands of people marching towards you. There are heads on spikes. Yes. You know, it's the kind of detail that we're used to hearing from this era, but actually imagine what that looks like. Yeah. You're going to be like, yeah, burn the bridge as well. Burn the palace as well. You're not. You're just going to say, right, okay, come in. Right. They're they're very murdery and very burny at this stage. And so, yeah, yeah, I think you don't want to stand too much in their way. Eventually, Richard did agree to meet them at Mile End the following day on June the 14th. And what Tyler put forward the peasants' demands, which were land rents to be reduced to reasonable levels, that the poll tax is abolished altogether, free pardons for the rebels. I thought that was very sensible because then, yeah, because then, you know, after all that looting, burning and murdering, you're not going to have the king's men immediately on your tail. And then charters to be given to the peasants, laying down their rights henceforth. Richard agreed to all of these demands, but he said that he couldn't submit to the final one, which was that all traitors must be put to death. He said, look, we can sort of do that in an amended way, which is that we get to decide who the traitors actually are. Uh, so leave that one with us. Um, but that was enough to at least preliminarily uh, have the peasants go, yep, we've got our deal. We can start to walk away. And as the peasants began leaving London, you know, this was another moment of Richard's sort of savvy again for a 14 year old. Uh, the king knew that the last members of the previously huge gathering of peasants were still encamped in Billericay in Essex, and they soon found themselves just being rounded up and cut down by the royal troops, even though they were flourishing these pardons and charters that they'd been given. And in fact, the charters themselves became a sort of virtual death sentence. 
sentence. Just having one became the thing that the king's men would target. Yeah, when the delegates of the Essex rebels asked the king for confirmation of the promises he'd made them while they were in London, Richard supposedly rebuked them, rustics you were and rustics you are still. You will remain in bondage, not as before, but incomparably harsher. He could have played that one better, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were... I was Team Richard for a little bit. <laughs> Tomorrow. Workshopped several animal-inspired moves with his choreographer, including panda and kangaroo. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com/slash/retrospector. Part of the Acast Creator Network.